This morning, we have, last week, we, or was it last week? Yeah, we finished up our series, our Why series. And this morning, we are going to start a new series from the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes. Over the next four months or so, we're going to study this interesting and amazing and perplexing book that was written thousands of years ago, but is still very relevant to us today. I wasn't sure what I was facing as I began preparing for this series. And so I was reading some very well-respected commentaries and it became clear to me that there's a reason that there are not many pastors preach from the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Almost every commentary I read began with this familiar refrain similar to Sidney Grittenhouse's. He says this, Ecclesiastes may be the most difficult biblical book to interpret and preach. Small wonder that many preachers consider it the better part of wisdom to omit Ecclesiastes from their preaching schedule. Uh, Honestly, I don't know what I was thinking when I decided to preach through Ecclesiastes. But Devin was right there with me. And uh, so we 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 are going to jump into this this book, and I think we're going to learn much over the coming months. One writer of Ecclesiastes said that this is possibly the strangest book in the Bible. And so I'm excited for us to get into this book to discover why is it the strangest book in the Bible? Why, why do so many pastors shy away from preaching from Ecclesiastes? What, what are its difficulties? And this morning, um, what I'm going to do is begin our series with an introduction to Ecclesiastes. So it's not going to be an expository message, but a survey, a re- just an overview of Ecclesiastes. And then next week, we'll begin our expository foray into this, this very unique book. What's important to know is that no matter how difficult it is to preach through a book like this or to read through a book like this, we learn from every book of the Bible, even, even when the interpretive process is, is challenging. And so as we dive into Ecclesiastes this morning, uh, my, my encouragement to you is that I want you to learn. I want you to become familiar with this book. I want you to embrace this book. I want you to enjoy this book. I want you to discover this book. Many uh, years ago, about 16 years ago, Marilyn and the kids took a cross-country trip, and we're going to the Grand Canyon, stopped in Colorado to visit my older brother who was living there at the time. And while we were spending three or four days in Colorado, we decided to go up to one of the gold mines. And they allow you to go hunting for gold, go gold panning. And you find rocks with gold in them. And you fill your car with rocks, all worth of about $2.33. But, you, but just, it's the hunt for gold. And it's a fascinating, but it's hard work. If you've ever panned for gold, it's hard work. But the rewards are great. And, and that's what we're doing with Ecclesiastes. We're, we're panning for gold. There's, there's treasure in this book. And so as we, as we dive in today, I, I want you to be looking for the treasure, to hunt for it. 
to hunt for this treasure in your own time at home in preparation for each Sunday that we gather together. So let's first begin with prayer. Father, we are so grateful for the Bible. So grateful that you have given us this book to hear you speak, to hear you communicate with us truth so that we can know you and we can live for you and we can put hope in the future because of you. And this morning as we we move into this new book, Lord, as we study and explore Ecclesiastes. We ask as a church that you would give us illumination, that you would give us revelation to understanding what you're speaking and to allow us to hear and then to to grow through these words. Lord, please glorify yourself this morning. Help me Lord, please help me to communicate well to this church that I love. In Christ's name, amen. So, welcome to our journey as we do explore what I think is, it's a unique book, it's a perplexing book, it's a raw book. It's a confusing book, and there are going to be passages we get to that you're just going to step back and go, this makes no sense whatsoever. So as I begin the introduction in Ecclesiastes this morning, uh, what I want to do is to begin giving you a foundational understanding of the book somewhere where you can, in a sense, kind of hang, hang your hat so, so that you have a hook there that you can fall back to each week as we study through Ecclesiastes. Next week, again, we'll begin our expositional approach uh, beginning in chapter 1. But, but let's look at some background to the book. First, the genre of the book. What, what kind of book is Ecclesiastes? Well, it's a wisdom book. It's a wisdom book like Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Songs. Ecclesiastes fits in there as a wisdom book. It is, there. you have other genres. You have the law, which is the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. You have history, you have poetry, you have prophecy. Um, wisdom books are unique. Wisdom books are not about the nation of Israel. Wisdom books do not declare the mighty acts of God. Wisdom books are about individuals and their experiences in life. Wisdom books are, are books that, that help us, I think, identify very clearly with, with the author. Wisdom books are, are, are very unique in that way. Now, the history of this book, when it was written, the date that this book was written is unknown. Heck, there's a lot unknown about this book. Speculation has it that it was written between 350 BC and 250 BC, but that's just speculation. Many times when we interpret a text, almost all the time when we're here exegeting, interpreting a text of scripture, the the time that the book was written, the audience that the book was written to, plays a crucial role in understanding the context of what was going on at the time. And, And Ecclesiastes doesn't give us that. So right from the start, we don't know when it was written. We don't know who it was written to. In fact, we don't even know who the author is. 
I know speculation has been that it was Solomon, and up until Martin Luther's time, many believed that, that Solomon was the author of Ecclesiastes, but after much scholarship um, and, and academic study nowadays, um, it's pretty evident that Solomon is most likely not the author of Ecclesiastes. So the question is, who is the author of Ecclesiastes? Um, don't know. In fact, if you, as you read the book, you will see in verses 1 through 11, you have the prologue. And then in verses 12 through, 12, 8 through 14, you have the epilogue, which is a bit shorter. And there's a good indication that the prologue and the epilogue are kind of written by another person because it speaks in the third person. And then from verse 12 of chapter 1 all the way through uh, chapter, tw- chapter 12, verse uh, 7, you have this monologue by this man, and we don't know exactly who he is. He goes by the name, as look at verse 1, the words of the preacher. So he identifies himself as the preacher. In the Hebrew, and, I, and I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, um, even though I am Jewish, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Um, I do have some background in Hebrew. I once opened a Hebrew Bible. Um, I, I do my study. And, and the, the Hebrew name here is Kohelet. Kohelet. I, is anybody doing the, 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 the Kohelet? That's how you spell it. And that's how it's pronounced. Kohelet. So in, in the Hebrew, it's, it's Kohelet. He Three times in the beginning of the book, once in the middle, and three times at the end of the book, he refers to himself in this monologue as the preacher or the teacher, Kohelet. And it is a name in Hebrew that means to call together, to teach. And that's why he he calls himself the preacher. Who Kohelet is, is, is unknown. It's just unknown. That's, that's a part of the mystery of Ecclesiastes. But it, it shouldn't deter us from, from reading and learning and listening to God speak to us because this is inspired text. It's in the canon of Scripture. It's in the Bible. But that's not what's so challenging about the book of Ecclesiastes. Even though we don't know its author, we do know it is inspired by God. It's what Kohelet says that can throw our thinking at times into a tailspin. Read, read through this book once and it will likely appear to you. You'll come away thinking this is, Kohelet is the most pessimistic, the most cynical man that ever walked on the face of the earth. He just does not like what life is all about. It is, a, it is a depressing book if you miss the message and the purpose of the book. It, it is, it's a very, on first read, it's a very dark and foreboding book. And it would be understandable to think, why is this in the Bible in the first place? What was God thinking when he put Ecclesiastes in the Bible? What can we possibly learn from a man who looks at life so darkly? I mean, just look at, look at verse 
verse 2 of chapter 1, just to give you an idea. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, where they flow again, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And on and on he goes. And in other translations, when you see the word vanity, it, they, it's translated meaningless, emptiness. Uh, it, so, so what you're hearing the preacher, Kohelet, say is meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. That's a dark view of life. That's a sad view of life. So today, I, what we're going to do today, my objective is to provide you with this background information, this hook that you can hang your hat on. So when you do read the, the message uh, of the book or you, you hear us speak about Ecclesiastes, you have something to work from. You can, you can look back. And today I want to look at the overall purpose and message of the book. And when I say the purpose of the book, I mean that Kohelet speaks to inform us from his point of view that and this is what he's saying. He says this, there is nothing under the sun that is capable of giving meaning to life. That is what Kohelet is saying. There is nothing under the sun that is capable of giving meaning to life. Now, there are times when Kohelet can vacillate and he brings God into the equation. You'll see that in the book. And that's where you can see this, what appears to be contradictions. And you wonder where this guy is coming from. But overall, that was, that's what he's communicating even if he finds joy or satisfaction, as we'll read in Ecclesiastes, at some level, it doesn't matter because he knows in the end, this is, this is where he, he, he ends up. He knows that death is waiting for everyone in the end. So that's what I mean by the purpose of the book. Kohelet speaks to inform us that there is nothing under the sun that's capable of giving meaning to life. Now, that's the purpose. When I say the message of the book, what I'm communicating is, I mean that God speaks to us from his point of view that the only place we find meaning in life is in him. So the message of the book is in direct contradiction to Kohelet's view. And then what we'll learn in this book is that the only place we find meaning in life is in him. So I have a long proposition. You don't have to write it down. Uh, it's just my 
overview thoughts. The, the recurrent themes in Ecclesiastes, and you're going to see recurrent themes. When you, when you go home this week, I'd love for you to just take some time to read through Ecclesiastes. You're going to see recurrent comments. You're going to see the same phrases again and again. Not just once, not just twice, not just five times, but 10, 20, almost some up to 30 times you're going to see the same phrases again and again. And that will give you a clue into Kohelet's thinking. That will give you a clue into where he's going. And there's recurrent themes. One of them is the meaningless of life. The other is life under the sun. Another is fear God and keep his commandments. And all of those connect the dots for what this book is all about. And what application we can bring to our lives from this book. And so that we can understand the difference and the consequence between a self-centered life and a God-centered one. That's what we're going to find. The difference between a self-centered life and a God-centered one. Two main points this morning. The first one is the view from above. And then the second one I'll be talking... I'm sorry, the, the view from below is the first one. The second one is the view from above. So let's look at the view from below. Life is meaningless. That is Kohelet's view. Life is meaningless. As we will study chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 next week, um, as we begin this, this study, as we begin expositing this passage, you will see, again, vanity of vanities, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. 35 times Kohelet uses that phrase in just 12 chapters. It's in every chapter but one, numerous times. Kohelet uses this word repeatedly to express his view of life. That life is, is meaningless. Life is temporary. Life is passing. Life is without substance. David in Psalm 39 verse 5 expresses this. He uses the same Hebrew word that Kohelet. It's the word um, heleb, which, which means uh, a a breath, a vapor, a temporary, a temporariness to life. David writes in Psalm 39, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely man goes about as a shadow. That is Kohelet's view. 35 times he expresses the, the thought that, that life is just meaningless. It's just a vapor. It doesn't last. Now, vanity is not a word that we use today to descri describe our lives. I mean, in 35 years of pastoral ministry, I've never heard somebody walking around muttering, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Never. What I have heard is something very similar. What's the point? What's the point? What's the point of my suffering? What's the point of my pain? 
what's the point of my trying to live a godly life when I keep facing my sinful tendencies? What's the point of praying? If God is sovereign, does it really mean anything? What's the point? All is vanity. Nothing is going to last. So we may not use the phrase, but we sure do have the idea. And we do struggle with the same thoughts in our own lives at times. Kohelet's struggle is finding the meaning in life because he sees all of life as a striving after the wind. That's how he views life. He, if you look at verse 17 of chapter 1, he says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive this also is but a striving after wind. That's it. That's life. I've tried it all. And it's just striving. Look at verse 14, just a few verses earlier. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. A striving. Koya's struggle in the meaning of life is that he feels like there's a, this is just all striving. It's, in his mind, it's, a, it's worse than a dog chasing after its tail. <laughs> it's just, it goes nowhere. It produces nothing. It has no hope. And throughout the book, in, in chapter 5, verse 7, Kohelet, he, he sees vanity in, in many things. He sees vanity in, in verse 7, 4. When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. He sees vanity in much dreaming and many words. In, in chapter 6, verse 1, he sees vanity in having wealth. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth. In chapter 8, verses 10 and 14, he sees vanity in the injustices of life. In, chapter, in verse 10, he says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And so his, he sees vanity in you do good and you get rewarded by, the, by what the wicked gets rewarded by and you do bad and you get the rewards of the righteous. And so he says, just, that's just meaningless. That's just vanity. In, in chapter 11, verse 10, he speaks about vanity in youth and vigor. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Uh, that verse tells me he's not in his 60s. <laughs> he, he has no idea. I, I want youth. <laughs> I want vigor. And then in, in chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, he sees vanity. He sees meaninglessness in your hard work. You get up every day and you go to work 
and he sees vanity in that. In verse 4, he says, I have made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and concubines. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Now that's where some might think it is Solomon being spoken here. But there were many kings in Jerusalem and, and it, there's, no, there's no real clear biblical warrant that we can say that it's definitely Solomon. But he goes on and says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I expanded in do, expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, if, if I were you, I'd be thinking, what is my pastor getting us into? This is what he wants to preach to us? He wants me to go home and think about life being vanity and meaningless? Well, there's, there's more. Kohelet is a picture of someone who sees life particularly from a secular world view. Because he interprets life through his own experience. He doesn't interpret life through God's word. He interprets life through his own experience, which tells him then that everything under the sun is simply vanity. It's, a, it's meaningless. It's a passing breath. It's a passing moment. It's a vapor in life. Richard Belcher, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, says this, in sum... The fact that the righteous do not always receive the promised blessing in this life and that the wicked do not receive the expected negative consequences constitutes a major reason for Kohelet's conclusion that there is no profit from human activity under the sun. Everything in this life is hebel, vanity, because Kohelet does not take a perspective that reaches above the sun. He, he fails to bring God into his personal problems that plague him, that, that he, he sees life under the sun uh, with God being far away. Now, the phrase under the sun appears 30, 29 times in Ecclesiastes. So that's a theme. You've got this theme of vanity 35 times. Life is meaningless. And now you have this phrase 29 times under the sun. The view of Kohelet, the, the perspective of Kohelet. He fails to bring God into his personal life. It's, it's not that Kohelet doesn't have God in view. He does. If you look at chapter one, uh, verses, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, he, he speaks about God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen when you vow 
a vow to God. Do not delay in repaying it. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? But God is the one you must fear. So, so he has a view of God. And it's why I think we can, we can identify. It's that he vacillates back and forth as to God's involvement in his life, in his personal problems. This past December, when my daughter Carrie was in town do, having an interview at Georgetown University, uh, I, I, I drove her down because I wasn't going to allow my daughter from North Carolina driving in rush hour traffic in, in Washington, D.C. And other than being with Carrie, you know, driving in rush hour is not a happy drive, especially in Washington, D.C. And as I'm as I'm inching along, I really wasn't driving, I was crawling. And as I'm, as I'm inching along, I'm just looking at other drivers and, and I, I see what, what is most likely normal to, to rush hour traffic, rush hour drivers is frustrated people, impatient people, um, angry people, people drinking coffee, um, ladies putting makeup on, um, many on the telephone, all inching their way somewhere like me and, and just thinking probably what I'm thinking, this stinks. This, this, this stinks. Well, just a week earlier, I flew into D.C. and my plane in the early afternoon was coming in. It, it followed the same route coming up the Potomac along the Cabin John Parkway and right over Georgetown University. And it was a clear day. It was beautiful. I loved the drive at that moment. We weren't inching along. And, and it was just, it was, a, it was, I was enjoying the moment. And it was a great way to, to come in. Well, Kohelet, Kohelet almost always sees life from the road. He fails to see what he should see even when he's looking. 21 times in Ecclesiastes, here's another theme that you can research as you're reading. 21 times in, in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet exclaims, I have seen, I saw, and I perceived life as it should not be. I have seen, I saw, I've perceived. He's looking. He's looking like I did as we were driving into Georgetown. He's looking, but he's not looking from the view where I'm flying in. He's looking from the road. He's seeing life under the sun from the road. This is a view from below, a, a view that we'll look at more closely in the, in the coming weeks and months. But when, when Kohelet talks about seeing life under the sun... He's talking about a horizontal view of life where God is not present. That's what he means by under the sun. He's not just talking about under the warmth of the sun while I'm at the beach, lounging, tanning. He's talking about life down here, not up here. That is Kohelet's view from below. And that is what you're going to see in every chapter of Ecclesiastes. That's what we're going to find as we work our way through it. And so as you hear each message each week, think back to, okay, what's he looking at? How's he viewing this under the sun? And what is he thinking as meaningless? That's 
That's your hook. That's, that's what you're hanging on to over the next number of months as we go through Ecclesiastes. What is he finding meaningless? What's his under the sun view? And what's he seeing? That point two, the view from above. Point one, the view from below, life is meaningless. Point two, the view from above, life is not meaningless. And that is also what we want to discover in Ecclesiastes. Although Kohelet's own experience is used to suggest that nothing under the sun is able to give life meaning, if God is the center of our worldview, life can be put in its proper place. We can rest under God's sovereign control. Look, look, at, look at chapter 3, verse, verse 1. Here is here's a statement of God's sovereignty and control over all of life. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, look at the look at the comment here. Here's where Kohelet sees God. There, for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under, not under the sun, but under heaven. He sees the sovereignty of God here. And then he goes on to say a time to be born, a time to die. He, he sees the hand of God, the sovereignty of God involved in every detail of life. We can rest in God's sovereign control over everything. Even when life is difficult. Stability can only be found in a God-centered view of life. We we were created not just to view life from under the sun, but life under heaven. Life from God's perspective, from a heavenly perspective. Because we were made by God for God. Look Look at chapter 3 and verse 11. One of one of, my, one of my favorite verses in, in Ecclesiastes. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. He's put eternity into your heart. You were created by him. You were created for him. And... This is why we want to be able to see him. To see him, not in the way Kohelet typically sees him, but in the way that Scripture portrays the majesty and goodness and greatness of God. And our temptation is that when we go through adversity, we see life from the road. We see life from under the sun. We say, not vanity, but what's the point? What's the point? I've tried this and I've tried that. What's the point? I've lived to serve God. What's the point? It doesn't work. I've given my life to this church and the church splits. What's the point? I've invested in my marriage and it's just going through a difficult season. What's the point? It doesn't seem it's ever going to get better. 
I've prayed for healing again and again and again and nothing happens. What's the point? That's a life viewed from the road. Not a life viewed from under heaven. Listen, adversity comes to all of us. It's common to every person in this room. And if we only have an under the sun view, life will appear to be what's the point. It will appear to be vanity. What should comfort us, though, is to know this, that Jesus Christ came and he lived under the sun. He walked where we walked and he felt what he felt and he experienced what we experienced and he suffered the way we suffered and he knows life the way we know life. He lived under the sun in our world. He came to be with us. But even as he lived under the sun, he never stopped looking above to heaven. He can give sympathy and he gives grace. He gives grace. Listen, when I, when I read the book of Job and I see his extreme suffering, I, I get it, I, but I can struggle to identify with him. I've never gone through the kind of pain and suffering that, that Job has gone through and I never want to. I never, I never want to. Uh, That's one of the reasons why I think a lot of pastors avoid preaching through Job because they're afraid that God's going to take them through a Job-like experience so they can preach it better. And so it's like, well, maybe we'll hold off on that book for a while. Um, In the Psalms, I, I can get closer to understanding pain and suffering through David's trials. Um, but I, I don't experience the kind of enemies that, that David experiences who want, who want to kill him. Ecclesiastes, though, fits my life. Because as, I, as you read through this book, as I read through the experience that Kohelet has, I realize I, I, I've had that experience. I've felt that way. And there's this identification. Uh, because Kohelet, I think, he reads the newspaper. He watches the news. He's concerned about the government. He's concerned about... The, the wicked prospering. He's wondering how God's going to make it all come together for good. And he walks away thinking, I don't see it. I don't see it. But we need to. We need to see it from a heavenly perspective. Do you remember the TV show Gilligan's Island? <laughs> Some of you probably still watch it. Uh, (laughs) It's the same basic plot every week. Every episode begins with some crisis. Then someone magically ends up on the island with the the crew of the minnow. um, And escape looks possible. Maybe this is the one person that's going to rescue them. But then the stranded person at the end of the show disappears and Gilligan starts all over again. It's the basic pattern for over 700 shows of Gilligan's Island. They never quite 
get to uh, get off the island, uh, I guess, till the, the end of the show. Well, the Bible has a very similar basic pattern in every book. It's creation, fall, and recreation. Every book that you read in the Bible, you're going to see creation, the fall, you're going to see something about recreation. In every book of the Bible, these three, three things have a, have a place, and yet you're going to see a particular emphasis on one or two of the others. In Genesis, it's strong on creation. It's strong on the fall. But, but you look in Genesis 3, there's a hint of recreation. There's a hint there. In the Gospels, there's a hint of creation, but strong on the fall and recreation. In the book of Ecclesiastes, in particular, it expounds on the devastating effects of the fall. With, with death being the ultimate declaration that life is meaningless apart from the Creator. That's Colette's view from the road. Now, Colette, Kohelet describes a world struggling under the effects of the curse, under the effects of the fall, and he often can't see anything else. You turn on the news just in these past weeks, and you see the effects of the fall. And if you just watched news for one day, all day long, you would be writing your own book of Ecclesiastes. You'd be seeing life from the road. Does it make sense, though, to describe life as meaningless and all vanity? No, it does not. Because well past the time this book was written, there was one who appeared on earth who hung on a tree, who took the curse of the fall upon himself. Jesus took our judgment. He took our curse. He took our consequences to redeem our lives, to free us from the judgment of God and to put eternity in our hearts in a brand new way. Mark Dever says this in his commentary on Ecclesiastes. He says, for life to have meaning, we need to see what lies beyond it. We need judgment and we need hope. It is because God, the author, will finally evaluate what we do that life has meaning. See, it's not our evaluation that gives life meaning. It's God's evaluation that gives life meaning. We were created by someone bigger than us for his purposes and for his ends. Only from him can we learn meaning and truth. When we view our lives from his perspective, what do we see? What do we see when we turn away from our self-centered, beneath-the-sun perspective and adopt the teacher's own God-centered perspective? We see first our rebellion against God. This becomes evident as soon as we stop measuring success, fair, good, and valuable from our own vantage point and begin using God's standards. Second, we see the promise of judgment that our rebellion requires. But third... We learn in the scriptures marvelously that God is not only holy, he is loving. And he has given his son to die on the cross and take upon himself God's judgment for the rebellion of all those who will ever repent of their sins and believe in him. Listen, there is a view from above that we will discover in Ecclesiastes and it's, it's this, and it's the title of my message, Grace Changes Everything. 
Grace changes everything. Life is not meaningless in Christ. Listen, Ecclesiastes is a perplexing book, but it's a wonderful book because it shows in vivid detail that God is not distant from our lives. This book in the Bible is about reality. The reality of the life that you experience, the life that you face. This book in the Bible gives voice to the struggles that we experience. This book in the Bible reminds us that God does exist. He is not distant and he is intimately aware of the challenges we face. This book in the Bible is provided to give us warning that don't view life from the road. So brothers and sisters, as we, as we dive into Ecclesiastes in the coming months, just keep in the background Kohelet's view, the meaningness, meaninglessness of life, life under the sun, everything I have seen, but keep in view too, life under heaven. Because you're going to see life under heaven emerge from this book. So, your only point of application this morning is this. Read Ecclesiastes this week. Read Ecclesiastes this week. As we proceed in our study, study this book that you might grow and understand more. Father, thank you for truth in Scripture. Thank you for identifying with us in scripture for for speaking to us that this book isn't just some far off experience but it's it's life to us it's our lives and and we can understand and identify and so lord as we as we study over these next months oh god please help us to understand so that we might glorify you in our lives Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's close with our benediction this morning. 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen.